Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. We're wrapping up our cardiology module with a journal update on transesophageal echo during cardiac arrest and a talk on pulmonary embolism. We also had a great grand rounds from Andy Slos on neonatal and infant emergencies, and we're going to publish that in its entirety later this week. Let's start with the journal update. This was a quick talk discussing an article from Michael Blavis published in Resuscitation in 2008, looking at the role of TEE, or transesophageal echo in cardiac arrest, given by one of our chief residents, Carlo Canepa. And to discuss that article, I'm going to welcome back Jenny Beck-Esme. Jenny, welcome back to Core EM. Thanks, Swami. I'm happy to be here. All right. So tell us a little bit about this article. So point-of-care transthoracic echo, or TTE, has become a larger and larger part of resuscitation, and specifically for cardiac arrest. Ultrasound has the advantage of allowing the practitioner to directly visualize reversible pathology that can be causing the patient to present in extremis or cardiac arrest. This includes finding cardiac tamponade, looking for the absence of lung sliding that would indicate a pneumothorax, acute RV strain suggestive of pulmonary embolism, or even an acute valvular rupture from MI causing cardiogenic shock. Intra-arrest, ultrasound has further advantages as it can be used to replace the pulse check. We've got good data showing that using our fingers to find a pulse is insensitive and nonspecific, so why not use ultrasound to directly visualize if there's a cardiac output? Yeah, that's a great point. I think a number of physicians have replaced the pulse check with ultrasound. And Matt and Mike over at the Ultrasound Podcast have a great two-part series on how we should be using ultrasound in cardiac arrest and post-arrest care. We'll drop a link to that in the show notes. Transesophageal echo, or TEE, offers even more benefits over transthoracic as it gives better images. It's unaffected by body habitus. It allows you to look for pathology without stopping compressions and allows you to assess for the quality of compressions. Yeah, those final two are particularly important because we know that minimizing pauses in CPR is critical to maintaining brain and organ perfusion. All right, let's get back to the Blavis article now that we've set down the general parts of TEE. Sure. So this article was a case series of six patients with cardiac arrest. The author describes how the use of TEE aided the physician in identifying the underlying pathology and guiding management. The first case was a patient who was thought to be in cardiac arrest by pulse check, but TEE identified cardiac activity and led to the use of vasopressors as opposed to ACLS for resuscitation. The second case was another pulseless patient where TTE showed cardiac standstill, but TEE revealed VFib. This patient was then shocked into normal sinus rhythm. Case three demonstrated a clot in transit, which allowed for the diagnosis of massive PE to be made and directly guided treatment as the patient was then given thrombolytics. Case four was a patient with VFib that was caused by a pick line that was striking the LV wall. Yikes. Case 5 was a patient with presumed PE, but TEE revealed ascending aortic dissection. This was a great catch, as instead of getting TPA, the patient was then taken to the operating room. And finally, case 6 was another patient who was thought to be an asystole, but TEE revealed VFib. Yeah, my favorite out of those two cases are the pick line that was striking the RV wall causing VFib. That is totally crazy, and there's no way that would have been on my differential without getting that look with the echo. The other one was the patient who had a TTE, which showed cardiac standstill, because that would likely have caused the resuscitation to stop. But instead, they got a TEE showing VFib and shocked the patient out of it. Pretty incredible work. 
Now for our EM journal update lecture series, we like to end each presentation with a stoplight model. The resident gives each article a stoplight color. Reds for not applicable to clinical practice, yellow for not quite ready for prime time but getting there, and green finally is for ready to use on the next shift. The resident who presented this article gave it a yellow light. What were the conclusions that he drew? Carlo noted that there are a number of potential advantages of TEE and cardiac arrest in ED patients, including optimal imaging for identification of pathology, but that further research is needed to investigate cost effectiveness as there's substantial expenditures for the device as well as the training. I'm pretty sure that this is going to be standard part of our care in the next five years. A number of places are already using TEE now. It's just really a matter of getting more providers trained and getting the modality, the actual equipment, to all of the EDs that need it. Our other resident lecture for the day was on pulmonary embolism, given by one of our PGY2 residents, Brian Lynn. I've got the pleasure of having Brian on the show to discuss the big take-home points from his talk. Brian, welcome to Core EM. Thanks for having me on, Swami. It's great to be here. All right, so PE is a huge topic that could fill hours of conference and podcast time, and in fact, it has. What did you choose to discuss during your 20-minute talk? Well, my talk really focused in on understanding risk stratification and decision instruments. I wanted to hone in on three take-home points. All right, that sounds great. So why don't you hit me with point number one? The first point was to trust your gestalt. Clinically diagnosing pulmonary embolism is a very difficult proposition, given that the signs and symptoms are very nonspecific. Things like shortness of breath are only seen in 75% of patients, and pleuritic chest pain is seen in a little less than half. Despite the inconsistent symptoms, studies have shown that clinicians are actually quite good at differentiating between low and high-risk probabilities for PE. Compared to established clinical decision models, unstructured clinical gestalt has about an 85% sensitivity rate. This is quite impressive based on history and physical alone, and it is the first step in starting any workup for PE. It should be noted that unstructured clinical gestalt likely includes many of the factors in accepted decision instruments like Wells and Geneva, as they've become integrated into the minds of emergency physicians. I think this is a great point. It's a good idea to learn Perk and Wells and Geneva as you develop your own approach and clinical knowledge base shapes the way you think about PE. All right, so what was take-home point number two? So the second point really was to understand the studies. It's really easy to misapply the various clinical decision models we have when we're working up PE. There are many instances when a patient can be both PERC and Wells negative despite having a high index of suspicion. It's crucial that providers understand the original premises of the studies and their primary outcomes. The PERC rule, for instance, was meant to be applied after you've already risk stratified the patient into a low-risk cohort. Moderate and high-risk patients should never have the PERC rule applied to them. Decision instruments like the PERC rule and Wells criteria are designed for risk stratification and cannot 100% rule out the presence of a PE. However, their utility is in lowering the post-test threshold to a level where it doesn't make sense to pursue further testing. Yeah, this is a critical concept for everything emergency medicine and really medicine in general. We rarely rule out diseases, or rule in for that matter. What we do is risk stratify. Tests, whether they're decision instruments, labs, or CT scans, raise and lower risk. At some point, you reach a risk threshold low enough that further testing is more likely to harm the patient. All right, Brian, let's hit point number three. My last point really is, is to be consistent. Like I mentioned earlier, the clinical gestalt of a physician alone is about 85%, which is good, but not great. If we apply these clinical decision models appropriately and consistently over our entire careers, we'll really start to approach the published sensitivities closer to 97 to 98%. So regardless of the patient's presentation, always go through your own algorithm in a stepwise fashion to get the most utility from these studies. 
For me, it starts with a low-risk clinical gestalt and then a PERC rule if applicable, or a two-step Wells criteria with a negative dimer to effectively rule out a PE. If any of these initial tests come back positive, the patient go- goes off to get more invasive imaging. Excellent, Brian. Well, those are three big take-home points for PE that I think are really critical in the workup. So thanks for coming on CoreEM and sharing, and I'm looking forward to getting you back on soon. Yep, me too. Thanks, Tommy. Well, that's all for CoreEM podcast this week. Come on over to the site and see what we've got working. This week, we'll have a core content piece on pulmonary edema and a journal club discussing the golden hour of trauma on Thursday. Finally, as mentioned earlier, we'll publish the full-length Grand Rounds talk from Andy Slos on neonatal and infant emergencies on Friday. Come on over and check out the site, visit us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at core underscore EM.